I have found out beat news in depth for you. Good evening and welcome to this edition of Outbeat News in Depth. I'm Greg Moralia. Tonight we're going to introduce you to a Catholic church that supports marriage for priests, same-sex marriage, and even having women serve as priests. Now this probably doesn't sound like the Roman Catholic Church you knew or even grew up with, but it's the old Catholic Church, a decentralized church rich with history and with former ties to the Roman Catholic Church. But it's one church that's evolved with society while preserving Catholic traditions. Tonight, Bishop David Doyle and Fathers Onetto and Martins join us to share more. And in the second half of our hour, we'll talk with our colleague and friend, Joe Salmanese. He served as the president of the Human Rights Campaign during the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell and the expansion of federal hate crimes law protecting LGBT people. He has a new book out called The Gift of Anger, Use Passion to Build, Not Destroy. It's all coming up next, right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, October 23rd, 2016. I have found Outbeat Radio News, your source for LGBT news from the North Bay and beyond. And this week's voter information from the Courage Campaign of California is about Proposition 63. Prop 63 is the Safety for All initiative to reduce gun violence and prohibits possession of large-capacity ammunition magazines and requires most individuals to pass a background check prior to purchasing ammunition, along with other provisions to increase gun safety. The arguments for this proposition include the fact that every year more than 32,000 Americans lose their lives to gun violence, And in 2016 alone, the U.S. had over 200 mass shootings, including the deadly attack at Orlando's Pulse nightclub that claimed 49 innocent lives. California already has some of the most effective gun safety laws in the country. And as a result, gun deaths were cut in half from 1993 to 2010. Prop 63 would continue to help save lives by keeping firearms and ammunition out of the hands of dangerous people while protecting law-abiding Californians. The arguments against this proposition include concerns that Prop 63 would criminalize law-abiding gun owners. The initiative would require gun owners to pay, apply, and then be screened before they're allowed to purchase ammunition. The long process could dissuade gun owners from signing up in the first place, forcing thousands of ammunition retailers out of business. The Courage campaign recommends a yes vote on Proposition 63. For more information about LGBT events happening here in the North Bay, go to GaySonoma.com. And for all the latest LGBT news headlines, go to our website at OutbeatNews.com. Be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for updates from Outbeat Radio News all week long. For Gary Carnavelli, I'm Greg Moralia. Outbeat Radio News, your source for LGBT news from the North Bay and beyond. I grew up in a Roman Catholic church and served as an altar boy and attended catechism, the whole bit. But I was spared from the pulpit the hate speech that's driven so many gay men and women away from the church and from their faith. In my second book, I even shared a letter I wrote to the Bishop of Oakland renouncing my membership in the church as I simply couldn't live with the hypocrisy I was witnessing during the child abuse scandal. Well, last spring, I discovered the old Catholic Church after meeting my guest tonight, Bishop David Doyle and Fathers Alex Aneto and David Martins. Welcome to all of you. 
Thank, Thank you. you, Greg. Good to be here. It's wonderful to have you here, and this is such a great story. I know when I met uh, Bishop Doyle back in Boston, I was so amazed uh, that an old Catholic church existed that was so welcoming of LGBT people. So, Bishop, please, uh, let's start with you. Give us the story of the old Catholic church and how it came to be. It's a story in about two halves. Back in the 1500s, the uh, uh, church in the Netherlands basically didn't have a bishop, and so they voted that the uh, king didn't like anyone that they proposed, and the Vatican didn't like anyone the king proposed, so they elected a bishop themselves, which the Vatican didn't like, so they put him under excommunication and interdict, and that was St. Gertrude's in Utrecht. And then finally, there was a, a group that really amassed after Vatican I in the 1870s, where the Vatican, where the Roman Catholic Church, the Vatican said, the Pope is infallible, and in fact, we're going to declare some traditions as dogma, which means the Catholic has to believe them for salvation. And a bunch of Northern European Catholic bishops and theologians said, you can't do that. And they broke away and formed the old Catholic Church because they said, we're going back to the conciliar style where infallibility is declared through bishops in council, not by any one person, the Pope. Fascinating. And, and just by its title, it implies, at least to me, uh, a more traditional or conservative approach. And, and that's just not the case from what I've learned from you, right? No, it's actually uh, uh, quite radical. Going back to the roots, they said uh, one man can't declare something infallible just because he said he's infallible. So they said, uh, we're going back to the conciliar style. Bishops gathered in as a group. And exactly. So what they did is they rebelled against the style of church at the time, which was very pyramidical with the Pope at the top. And you listened to his orders, period. Thank you very much. Sounds a lot like it is today. <laughs> Not a whole lot has changed. Right. No matter it, whether it's the velvet glove or the iron fist, it's still an iron fist. It's still an iron fist. And, and so give us a sense of, of how large the old Catholic Church is today. If you're looking at America, and Father Dave, please, if you have numbers, you know, fill, fill in, uh, step in. As near as I can tell, Greg, the old Catholic Church in all of its parameters and all of its groupings here in the U.S. is probably a couple of thousand people. Father David, what about Europe? In, uh, I read just the other day that in Europe, of the old Catholic churches, there's something like 120,000 uh, old Catholics in Europe, uh, yes. uh, in yeah. the, of the, and that's and even in Europe, the churches are national, so it's not like a European old Catholic church. Like there's an old Catholic church in Austria and the Netherlands and Switzerland and Poland and so on, um, but all of those together are like 120,000. Uh, I think here in the United States, I think a lot of us, you know, I I personally have a parish ministry, mm -hmm. so uh, so we're able to kind of get a pinpoint number like i can tell you how many people we have registered how many people show up that kind of thing but a lot of old catholic uh clergy in the united states i are very involved uh in in sort of more uh community engaging ministry uh, we have clergy who are chaplains for uh, police departments and fire departments they have clergy who are chaplains in nursing facilities and hospitals and so they're not so much getting adherents but ministering to people so sure. those those you know that 
that 80-year-old woman in the nursing home, if you asked her, are you an old Catholic or a Roman Catholic? She'd tell you she's an old Catholic, but she means something different. Right. <laughs> she means she's a Catholic who's old. But, uh, <laughs> but um, you know, I think that we do a lot of ministry of that sort where the end result is not collecting more numbers, but instead um, just providing a ministry to them, the sacraments to them when they're not getting them otherwise. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So, Father David, let's let's start with you. I'm curious about your own spiritual journey and how you found your way to the church. What drew you to a spiritual life, and then how did you end up in the old Catholic Church? Sure. My father is a deacon in the Roman Catholic Church, and uh, they're older, my parents. So uh, when I was growing up, I was uh, the last of four. We grew up in a very Portuguese Roman Catholic uh, family, very devout. And my father was a deacon. I spent a lot of time around the church. And when I was a little kid, I looked at the priest and thought, well, he does really cool stuff. <laughs> I want to, I think I want to be a priest, you know? And, uh, and then when I was in high school, really was when I started to really learn that a priest, cause I sort of wondered what he did after Sunday. Like, did he just disappear? Did he like, you know, go plug in somewhere? <laughs> like where, where did the priest go? You know? Mm-hmm. And then, uh, as I get into my high school years, I started to really discover what the life of a priest was all about, and uh, and I was just in love with it. And so I went right into the seminary out of high school, and uh, I did a lot of work when I was in the seminary with couples in the parish, especially in the later years, who were filing for annulments. And I really had a, a gripe with the, the way the annulment process worked. And so that was kind of kicking around in my head, and, and I'm gay, and so that was kicking around in my head. And uh, finally, as ordination day crept closer and closer, I said, there's too much I too much I don't agree with. So I uh, left, and then I had this, edu- this phenomenal education in philosophy and theology, so I went and tended bar. <laughs> I didn't really know. <laughs> I don't know what else you do with that, you know? And, well, there's uh, some sim- there's some very, very similar roles in those two there's jobs. All, there's there. a lot. <laughs> there's there's a, a lot of coffee that goes on in bars. That's me. right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, and so I was, uh, I was bartending and bar attending, as I always like to say. I was drinking like a fish, and I was miserable because I, uh, I wanted to be a priest. I felt called to be a priest. And I remember... You know, we'd get into conversations at the bar with customers sometimes. You know, they'd say, oh, what are you going to do when you grow up? And I'd be like, <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> um, and uh, or they talk about religion. And, you know, people would say, oh, why don't you try my church? And you got to, you know, I go to this great Episcopal church or I go to this great Lutheran church or I go to this great, uh, you know, UMCC church or, or whatever. And I just never was interested in. And I would say to them, I don't want to go to your church. I don't. I'm a Catholic. I don't, you know. And they say, well, how do you know? Come check it out. I, I know. <laughs> Thank you, and I'm sure you'll be in heaven, but <laughs> it's, it's not where I want to go and worship. And uh, and then uh, along the way, the I, I, I wanted to get out of bartending and start to try to, you know, become a grown-up, I guess you could say. And uh, so I made a, a resume and tried to build a resume um, from my seminary work. And... And I put it on, uh, you know, I put it out there in the in the magical world of the internet, and uh, and the bishop who ordained me found it, and we started to sort of talk, and uh, and then in the meanwhile, a classmate of mine from high school who had had a similar journey uh, was ordained to the diaconate, and so that sort of further caught my attention, and I, I kind of I went back and forth with the bishop for a good year, 
and uh, and also with um, seminary, I spoke with seminary professors to see what they thought about it, and Roman priests, who I was still very good friends with, and everyone was just so supportive. Mm-hmm. And and Bishop Doyle, how about you? What what uh-huh. led you? How did you find your way to this particular faith? My journey is not dissimilar to Father Dave's, except I would say that what I found is that uh, uh, I realized after I took a sabbatical and never looked back that I realized through visiting other churches and things that I liked being Catholic. I just didn't like being Roman. Mm-hmm. And I, that, was a, that was a realization, that, and it suddenly it all made sense to me. But like David, I grew up in a Roman Catholic household. I was an altar boy from age seven, and I was an altar boy all the way through the end of college when I declared for priesthood. Uh, four years of seminary, which is how I came to love the East Coast, uh, boy, uh, here I was from Iowa, middle, you know, Dubuque, Iowa, right on the Mississippi. Went over to the uh, East Coast to Baltimore, four years in Baltimore. Got ordained, was a priest in the uh, Archdiocese of Dubuque for uh, 15 years. Uh, taught high school, had parishes, uh, did parish work the whole time. And like David, you know, I knew all the terms, all the vocabulary. I batted a thousand getting annulments because I knew what to say, but it felt like a game. Mm-hmm. And I'm going, these people, these people's lives are, are, are what we're working with here. And it all depends on whether the priest wants to say what needs to be said on whether they can move on with their lives or what, you know? And that really got me wor- uh, worked up. In the beginning, I didn't realize, realize I was gay. That was a realization much later. Uh, and then when I left, it wasn't because I was gay. It was because that I was dissatisfied with where Rome was with lots of things. Um, I was a Vatican II priest, pure and simple. And after, after John, uh, Pope Paul VI died, John Paul II came in with a little, with a 30 day interim, uh, with another Pope. And suddenly the church seemed to like it was grinding to a halt. Didn't like that, didn't sit well with me, but I was trying to be loyal and everything. Finally, I took a sabbatical, never never looked back, and I my spiritual journey began looking at other churches, you know, like Father Dave, I always felt committed to my Catholic faith, and everything I looked at was seen through that. Uh, yep, Lutherans, Episcopal, <laughs> the local Catholic church, which reminded me why I left, because I kept going, Father, look up, you know, look at us, we're out here in the pews. You know, I was, <laughs> and I'm going. No wonder I left. <laughs> right. My God. Uh, but I realized then that I liked being Catholic, and I had to do something about that. And then there was, I was, I was attending uh, the MCC Church here in Albuquerque. I was the dean of the chapel. I had services, and I told the pastor, who was a former Lutheran, I said. You understand that when I have services, it's going to be a mass. He says, oh, hell, sure, I understand that. I know that. Half the, half the congregation is former Catholics. They'll like it. But it wasn't being Catholic. Mm-hmm. It was still MCC. And uh, I read, somebody contacted me and said, hey, have you ever heard of the old Catholic church? I've got a bishop coming into town. He met with me. He said, you're educated. You're trained. You have a good background. 
you left in good graces from the archdiocese, you know what? Think about us. And that was, and I opened uh, Christ the King Holy Catholic Church, is what we called it, Christ the King Holy Catholic Church, in 1996. And it's been around in one way or another ever since then. Wow. You know, and I think the stories that you both shared uh, are very similar to the experience that we've talked about on this show for a long time, which uh, on a broader scale is the dilemma that LGBT people face when they realize who they are um, and they realize that their non-heterosexual orientation conflicts with Roman Catholic teachings, they're really put in a position of having to make a choice. Do I... Do I accept who I am, or do I accept my faith and reject who I am, and then struggle? And I think we see way too many people leaving the church and then throwing out all of their spirituality for the rest of their lives. And I've always felt that that's that that's really tragic. One of the one of the reasons why I definitively chose not to consider myself Roman Catholic anymore is that the Roman Catholic Church says that homosexuality is an intrinsic disorder. <laughs> I don't consider myself disordered. Mm -hmm. I could not see belonging to a church that considered me disordered. They wanted me, my talents, and my time and everything, as long as everything was kept under wraps, as long as everything was quiet. But they did not want me to be me. So when you both were in seminary, uh, was, that, was there a clear message, or was it just sort of an unspoken uh, rule or... or level of acceptance it's well, okay for go ahead david go ahead oh, sorry i was in school uh around the time of the the child molestation scandal so we were in the environment when i was in was uh very uh it was all about everything was about sex and so we sat through countless conferences and uh talks and homilies that somehow managed to weave in all the evils of breaking the sixth commandment, whether it was everything from masturbation to being gay to, you know, when I was a little kid, the big thing was, uh, you know, couples living together before they were married. And then by the time I was in seminary, they, nobody talked about that anymore. They, everybody was, yep. the, big mor the big moral issue was anything involving um, a man and his private parts. And the, uh, at the time, they would never, I don't think anyone would ever, would ever say it outright, but the reality of it, I think, is is that pedophilia and homosexuality were equated as the same in the eyes of a lot of church leaders, and I think especially in the seminaries, because at that same time, they stood up at and basically told us that if you were in the closet, stay there, because there was no, there was no room for that in the priesthood. They, at the North American College in Rome, um, those were their exact words. And the other seminaries, like where I was, didn't say quite so bluntly, but but more or less. And I think that I think that us gay folk have a wonderful way of sniffing each other out. So, so yeah. we uh, always found each. At least in my case, we've always found each other in the seminary. And uh, and it, that's the irony is that you know the Roman Church has the feelings they do about homosexuality, and yet if every homosexual left the Roman Catholic Church, there'd be no Catholic Church because. The majority of the clergy are gay. So the in the seminary, likewise, there were tons of us. And uh, that sort of fear of being found and thrown out created a lot of backstabbing. So even the, I guess you could call it, the LGBT community in the seminary <laughs> uh, was not even a community. Like, we weren't all 
hunky dory. We, you know, everybody, you knew someone else was gay, and and maybe you saw them at a bar that you snuck out to on a Friday night, but neither one would think twice about turning the other one in. And uh, it was really a, um, it was an ugly part for me. It was an ugly part of the whole thing. David, I, mine was a little different. I I was in seminary in the seventies, and it was incredible. It was the best unkept secret in the seminary. <laughs> I mean, everyone knew who, who was who and what was what to the point where there were so many in one hallway. It was called the Royal way. There were so many Queens there, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and that, and that was with the faculty too. I mean, the, it was rampant. Who know who, who knew who and who what was, was with whom back in the seventies. If your seminary had a pub, whether Southern Indiana or on the East Coast or whatever, if your seminary had a pub, chances are that seminary address and the pub's name was listed as a great pickup place for gays. <laughs> wow. Okay. You could, I mean, it was, you know, I'm, of course, that was with hard copy and stuff like that and books being published. Great pickup places in whatever city. And they would direct you to the seminary to the point where when we were in the basement in the, in the pub, we'd see people that we never saw before and we knew didn't go to school <laughs> with us. And we're going, who are these people? <laughs> and they were, on, they were on, on, on the property trying to pick people up because that's where they found us. You know, I think that's that, I think that's that an assumption. Seven. That was a I think that's a stereotype, an assumption that has existed for a long, long time. But to actually hear someone who was there say that, admit that, um, wow! Well, Father Alex, you're with us now. Uh, why don't you jump into this conversation and tell us about your journey? How did you get involved with the Old Catholic Church? I said uh, I joined the Roman Franciscans in 1977, following my military service and my college education. Uh, but after several years there, I was very discouraged and felt very threatened by the misogyny and the homophobia that was endemic at the time. And uh, I left the church and I continued pursuing a vocation outside of the church. I worked with a Jesuit parish here in Boston for quite a while. And it wasn't until 2005 that I actually became familiar and aware of the old Catholic tradition. And that was an amazing spiritual awakening, a renewal of my spiritual awakening. When I found this welcoming environment that was so filled with faith, it just opened a whole new world to me. Hmm. And for the last 11 years, I have pursued furthering my education, pursuing a deeper involvement spiritually, and having worked with uh, Bishop David now for almost nine years, uh, it has just been an amazing, amazing journey. Well, and these stories sound very similar to what I hope some LGBT folks out there who have been alienated by the Roman Catholic Church <laughs> might experience if they, if they discover the old Catholic Church. So, Bishop Doyle, let's go to the question about what are the fundamental differences that someone's going to see? Someone who has a Roman Catholic experience, what are the fundamental differences in the old Catholic 
church and the faith or the 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 teachings of the old Catholic Church that are going to be different? I think most people who most most Catholics who come to an, who come to an old Catholic Church will not find anything jarringly different. Most of us use the Mass as we understand it. Okay, the Mass of Paul the Sixth or the Novus Ordo uh, that existed uh, with. We make minor changes. We use we tend to use inclusive language. Uh, some of us do other things, and yet the Mass pretty much is 90 to 95 percent what everyone would be familiar with um, from the Roman Catholic background. And that's where most people run into the old Catholic Church is through Mass or sacraments. Mm-hmm. Okay? And there would be very little difference, very little disconnect uh, uh, between most of our services, most of our Masses and celebrations and sacraments than what they're familiar with now. So talk a little bit about the inclusive language and the experience, the messaging that a lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender person is going to hear that will be different or will sound different, feel different than what they've experienced with the Roman Catholic Church. We tend to, uh, and, and this varies from priest to priest, but most of us use inclusive language in uh, Scripture using brothers and sisters, uh, children of God instead of uh, men and sons and things like that. Uh, we inclusify it. Some priests even go so far as to use uh, uh, the divine parent, not calling God Father. Uh, they, they steer away from that gender designation. But also one of the big things with uh, the old Catholic Church is that many of us also ordain women. So okay. being female is not an impediment in most of our old Catholic churches. So there could be a woman, uh, a female priest, um, transgender priest. Gender and sexuality is not an issue with us, pretty much. And so talk about marriage. Well, marriage, uh, most old Catholic churches that I'm aware of do allow marriage equality, uh, totally support it. I myself married my husband three years ago, uh, legally, uh, and we were married spiritually back in, oh God, 19, oh God, he's going to kill me for this, 19, <laughs> 90, uh, 96, actually. Yeah, 1996. So, yeah, so we were married uh, religiously, sacramentally, but we had to wait another 20 years almost to get married civilly. So that's a whole mouthful of differences. I heard uh, women serving as priests. I heard... Yep priests being able to get married, and I heard priests being able to marry someone of the same gender, all being accepted at the old Catholic Church. Without a blink. And you know what's really funny, I think, about it, uh, Greg, is that the, uh, I, too, am, I, too, am married to, um, to a guy, uh, and uh, the people don't care. And what I mean by that is that, like, yeah, they think it's wonderful and all that, and they certainly, you know, my husband's part of the parish, and he's got you know, his own little group of friends that he hangs out with from the parish. And, you know, he does his, he's one of the greeters, like that's the ministry that he's signed up for and stuff. But like, whether I was married to a man or a woman or people, the people of God, like are not as interested in the private lives of their priests as, as Rome would seem to think. Like this, I don't know if I'm coming across the right, like one of our priests who's uh, in uh, Connecticut, he and his partner have been together for like 20 years and 15 of those years, he was a Roman Catholic priest. 
and the people in his parish all knew about the partner and nobody cared. Hmm. Like, no, and I, and, and it's, and it's wonderful. I, I think, and I wish that everyone serving in the Roman Catholic church or the old Catholic church or in any spiritual vocation, uh, could be as open and could be as have an accepting experience as you all do. I think it's tragic that we're, that the Roman Catholic Church is imposing, you know, not only a, a celibate life, but a solitary life. Probably the most common remark from Roman Catholics and other Christians is the question of why doesn't Rome allow its priests to marry? They see Episcopal priests marry. They see Orthodox priests marry. They see ministers from other denominations marry. And there are no issues, there are no problems. And they all question, why doesn't Rome allow for married priests? An interesting fact, recently Rome allows married Episcopal priests to incarnate into the Roman Church. Hmm. And it's not an impediment. Being married is not an impediment in that instance. And so American public the American public asks that question, well, if they can allow a married Episcopal priest to become a Catholic priest, why then can't they allow their own priest the privilege of being married? It's funny, when we were in the seminary in college, there was an Episcopal priest who, uh, exactly this, you know, was married and came over to uh, and join the, incarnated into the Roman Church and all that, and... Uh, <clears throat> The seminarians, all we all. This was the college seminary. We all knew the guy because he taught at Providence College, and uh, we all served at the liturgy. And when he when he incarnated in, and so the big joke after we we were telling the bishop at um, at dinner that night that there was going to be a mass exodus from the seminary because we were all going to become Episcopalians so that we could get married and then become <laughs> Catholics in twenty years. And uh, and it was like you know we all thought it was hilarious. The bishop did not. <laughs> I bet not. Yeah. But Greg, the, the, Father Dave, that's exactly that goes back to one of the reasons why I left. And I thank you for bringing that up, Alex. That it was that hypocrisy, at least what I took at the time, decades ago, to be hypocrisy of Rome, is that they rewarded Protestant ministers to become Catholic priests and bring their families, their, their wives, and everything. But they didn't allow men who grew up as Catholics to marry. Hmm. And I thought, that was, I thought that was hypocritical at the highest level. That certainly you know, sounds it's like a reward it. for Protestants to convert, but you guys who lived it all your lives, you can't at all. Right, right. So. How, how do you think the two churches evolved so differently, and how did the old Catholic Church evolve to be so progressive and affirming of LGBT people, and and the larger Roman Catholic Church so opposite and so almost stubborn. I think that at this stage in the game, it's a matter of you know, like we look at the, the Roman Church as Pope Francis, and he's so wonderful, and he's opened this commission to study you know the possibility of women deacons, and you know he said some things that certainly no other pope has ever said, and um, it's interesting because I think you see the ultra-conservative side of the Roman Church, they cringe with fear, and they think that the Catholic Church has gone to hell in a handbasket, and then we see sort of the more progressive side, even in the old Catholics and stuff, a lot of times I think we hear people like, you know, oh, it's, it's all changing, things are a changing, things aren't changing. 
I mean, I think that they, that's a really big shift to turn. And the, the longer time goes on, the more this sort of, because now I think in the seminaries today, there's a very, very conservative mindset being pushed on these, on these guys. And, uh, sort of reactionary to the culture that's becoming more progressive. And so it's sort of this ugly cycle, I think that, uh, only perpetuates this, this, uh, mess, you know, I don't know if that makes any sense, but I think that historically a big piece of it all is that, you know, old Catholicism comes from Europe, which is a different mindset about everything. Like mm-hmm. life in Europe is just different. Uh, even when we hear the Pope talk about, uh, gay marriage, for example, marriage in Europe, you know, you go and get married, you go to get your license, you get married when you get your license, like you get married legally. And then you go to your religion and do whatever you want to do religiously. So <clears throat> the the mindset in general in Europe about so many things is so different. I think that's one uh, one piece of it. And, and I also think that the other part of that is that most old Catholic priests, clergy, uh, male clergy, um, are either gay or they are straight but wanted to get married. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so there's that realization that if they stayed in Rome, they couldn't be themselves. They couldn't be fulfilled, and there would always be that frustration and anger. And God knows, if anyone who's been in the Roman church that long has come into a pastor, and you wondered why, what embittered him. Why is he a bitter old, embittered old man, no matter what his age? But why is he embittered? And I think that's the reason a lot of uh, Roman Catholic priests have achieved that distinction, you know, with, with, with Lady. They respect them, but they wonder, why is he mad all the time? It's interesting, you know, the rates of alcoholism in the Roman Church among the presbyterate is enormous. And the numbers of clergy in the old Catholic Church who are in recovery is enormous. And I think that's interesting to point out. And, and I was going to ask, I mean, you, you say that a lot of the clergy in the old Catholic Church are gay uh, or or found the old Catholic Church because they wanted to get married. I would have to assume that that's probably the case for an awful lot of those people in the Roman Catholic Church. They just haven't figured out a way to be able to leave. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the only thing, the only point I would make here is that Old Catholic priests do not enter solely just to be married. Sure, right. but in the back of their minds, they know that that's an option. Exactly. So, what do you think? Uh, what's the future hold? Do you see the two churches coming back together at any time in the future, or is that division and separation going to continue to spread? You know, it's interesting. I I I got excited when I saw that question because. When we were, my parish is, uh, we're here in West Warwick, Rhode Island, but we uh, started, uh, we were renting a chapel at a Methodist church. And I remember the Methodist pastor saying to me, uh, when he gave us the space, he said, do you consider your church a reformed church? I kind of think about it, kind of. And I said, no, I don't think we're a reformed church. I said, well, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, I mean, is are you trying to reform the Roman Catholic church? I said, oh, no. <laughs> but, they can handle that. We, I'm, I'm here to worry about my church. But I think that that's part of that bigger question is what what is, you know, uh, are we heading towards coming together again or are we? And I'll be honest with you. I think that all Christian denominations is part of 
God's wonderful plan to make sure that there is a seat at the table for everyone. Yeah, and, Greg, uh, I, I, don't, I don't see any, any coming together, any unification. Uh, most old Catholics really have, at this time, have passed beyond what Rome cares. And we have our ministries, we have our parishes, we have our uh, uh, functions, and we minister to the people who want to come to us. And they want to come to us because, for whatever reason, they, they can't be ministered to or won't be ministered to by Rome. Mm-hmm. And they, they know that we're out there. I think there's another thing that makes us, you know, our tagline here is a different kind of Catholic here at my parish. And... Um, and that being different, yes, certainly the gay thing and the marriage and devoid women priests, but I think that even more than all of that, because when you come to Mass at my church, it's just, it's a run-of-the-mill Catholic Mass. The music's a little more upbeat, the congregation's a little more visibly diverse, and I think, I like to think the homily is a little more relevant. But I think that the other piece is that because of our size being smaller than an average Roman parish, we are much more community involved. We're much more people at our parish know more about their faith than they ever learned in a Roman church. We have ongoing like adult education stuff. We have uh, we do programs. You know, a lot of churches will put up a giving tree at Christmas. We adopt a family, and we provide Christmas for that family from beginning to end. The mm-hmm. Christmas tree, Christmas dinner, the presents, the stock, the whole nine, and it's local. We don't put a teddy bear in the mail and send it to some foreign country over there's plenty of poor right here in West Warwick. We don't need to go look into the other side of the Pacific to find a poor family to help at Christmas time. So I think that the faith, their Catholic experience is more personal in our communities. And I think that that's something that even if the Roman church changed everything tomorrow, our people would stay because yeah. I, I yeah. think that our expression of the faith is a little, is much more dynamic. I would like to say that in order for the two churches to become unified, they would have to come over to our side versus our returning to their side. And by that, I mean, the most, one of the most common responses from people is, why does Rome deny communion to divorced individuals? Why, uh, why does Rome have all of these impediments toward sacramental, toward receiving the sacrament? One of the most beautiful sentiments I have ever heard was the first time I heard Father David present communion to his community. And uh, uh, David, if you want to share that, that speaks volume. Father David, share those words. Oh, I, I, I just always say to them, uh, it doesn't matter where you are on life's journey, where you've been or where you're going. It doesn't matter who you're on that journey with, and it doesn't matter how long it's been. And the longer it's been, the more eager our Lord is to meet you in his true presence in this Eucharist. And I also tell them that, uh, that I'm in recovery and that, uh, oh, I say, if you join me in recovery, to know that the wine and the chalice is alcohol-free. Because um, we do give communion out into both species. And people, it's, I'm amazed at how many people, it's funny because, you know, <clears throat> I've just become, it's part of my spirituality, that this, my understanding of the Eucharist. And Now, Greg, yeah. imagine, imagine, Greg, if you were in a Roman church and you heard the priest at the altar pronounce those words, there would be shockwaves through the congregation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it would it would definitely uh, it would definitely surprise me. That's for sure. Yeah, 
<laughs> Greg, I've never heard of an old Catholic church withholding communion from anyone. No, never. Yeah. Or, or threatening a politician with such? Or, exactly, exactly. So tell us where people can go to begin their search uh, for an old Catholic church to attend and explore. Gentlemen, do you want well, to I take think, it? I think Father Alex Anito knows every single old Catholic clergy person in the, in the United States. So I think he <laughs> they does. Could just, they could just call him, and he probably... <laughs> He's probably Call me for a referral. <laughs> but, uh, but I mean, well, really, I to, but really Google, you know, get on Google and just and throw in your state and and see, you know, certainly if they're in New England, they could reach out to uh, to, to St. Therese. It's my parish. We have parishes uh, all in New England. Um, Father Alex, of course, in New England. Bishop David, I think your priests are in the in the big states, aren't they? Out in the yes. western area. Um, yeah, yeah. And and we all know, like we all know each other. So I was joking with Father Alex, but really we do all kind of know clergy in different places. So if someone's in, you know, Portland, Oregon, I don't know anybody there, but I can ask around and we'll find somebody there. Great. Yeah. Well, we'll put some links on our website at outbeatnews.com. And if you're interested, you can pursue uh, an exploration of a very affirming, open and welcoming Old Catholic Church. Well, Bishop Doyle, Father Alex, and Father Martins, thank you so much for sharing your experience and uh, opening our eyes to the Old Catholic Church. Greg, thanks for asking. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Greg. It's been a real honor. Thank you. And if you're just joining us, you're listening to Outbeat News in Depth here on KRCB Radio 91. I'm Greg Moralia. Well, I'm really excited to welcome back my friend and colleague, Joe Salmanese. You'll remember he served as the president of the Human Rights Campaign during a time when federal hate crimes law was expanded to include LGBT people and during the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. He was instrumental in negotiating with federal legislators and with President Obama in getting all of this done. He's written a new book all about his experience, and it's called The Gift of Anger, Use Passion to Build, Not Destroy. Joe, welcome back to the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, the book is called Gift of Anger, Use Passion to Build, Not Destroy. Talk about where the motivation and the idea came from to write. So one of the things, one of the most significant things I found myself in the middle of during my time at HRC was the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And, and having said that, I you know, had the opportunity to work with Judy Shepard and so many people on the hate crimes bill and on a number of marriage fights in, in about seven or eight states during my time there. But Don't Ask, Don't Tell was the effort that I really was kind of squarely in the middle of alongside the president and, and a number of of incredibly brave service members who had been serving in silence. And to me, I, I thought that that work, particularly the legislative effort, was an interesting story. Uh, and I spoke with a couple of book agents, uh, and, and is is often the case when you're thinking about writing a book. Um, upon telling them the story of repealing Don't Ask, Don't Tell, uh, they found it significantly less interesting than I did. And and they thought it, you know, it's sort of mar- marginally interesting as a legislative fight, but not necessarily a book that would sell. And and so I sort of went on doing what I often did, which was talking to college kids who were getting ready to head out into the world and giving a speech that I often gave about my work in social change, the kind of six or seven lessons I had learned and how I thought they might apply it to their sort of initial work life or, you know, social change work or activism. Um, and, and that very same book agent who I had initially met with um, heard about the speech 
came to meet with me in New York when I was speaking at Columbia and said to me, you know, that speech, that, that sort of general framework is really something that ought to be a book. Uh, and so I went off for about nine months and expanded my 15-minute speech into this book and um, wrote, which I'd never done before, uh, you know, oftentimes on the train back and forth from New York to D.C., uh, and it became a book, and, and it became kind of a learning, exploring experience for me, you know, an opportunity to re-examine a lot of the work that I'd done and the situations I had been in. Uh, and, and in the writing was really where I, I was kind of able to draw out this theme of overcoming anger. I didn't go into writing the book with that idea. I just sort of went into writing the book telling these stories and the lessons that I had learned. But in the writing is where the narrative developed, and I came to see that this idea of overcoming anger was central to all these stories. Right, right. And you talk about just a whole wide range of experiences you've had. I mean, really unique and and powerful experiences. And without giving all the secrets of the book away, uh, you mentioned Don't Ask, Don't Tell, but maybe there's another that stands out to you as being the most significant or important to you so talk about that, and what was the lesson you got from that? Well, I think, you know, the book is a series of stories in which I'm confronting people in an effort to make change, which means that I'm, I'm often confronting people with a point of view that's very different from mine. And as any of us can imagine, when you confront somebody with a point of view very different from yours, and they start to talk about why their view is different from yours, that's something that you hear in a way that can elicit a lot of emotions, uh, most notably anger. And I think when we, when we are trying to get somebody to do something we want them to do or trying to get someone to come around to our way of thinking, and they not only disagree with us but offer up an excuse for that disagreement that makes us incredibly angry or offended or frustrated, we tend to react from an emotional angry place. And the the point of the book is that if you can be intentional and thoughtful and deliberative about the anger and kind of put it in its appropriate place, whether it's sort of shrinking it or putting it off to the side, and think clearly and dispassionately about what it is that you need to do in order to get this person on your side, it's a much more effective exercise. And and getting being able to move the anger aside and get to whatever the next tactic is, is really what the book is, is the instructional part of the book is about. Well, one of the stories in there that caught my eye was that moment with President Obama, where you were standing there just before he was going out and signing the bill, doing away with Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And you were reflecting a bit on the anger that was coming from within our own movement. You know, you kind of get the resistance from the outside, from the conservatives on some of the other issues. But but this one in particular seemed to have a lot of internal anger and struggle within our own movement about what was the right way to go with Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Talk about how you managed the anger coming from our own folks. Right. I mean, there, there's part of the, the sort of the learning of this as I wrote was, wow, there was anger coming from me at the resistance I was experiencing. Sometimes there was anger coming from, say, religious leaders at me because I was doing something that they took offense at and trying to advance marriage equality. And yet there was all of this anger coming from the community because, understandably, we weren't moving as quickly or as effectively as they thought we ought to be moving. And so oftentimes, you know, with the president, for instance, in the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, we were really clear that we had 
the number of votes we needed in the House. We had a president in office who was supportive of the legislation and poised to sign the bill. And all the work we needed to do was in the Senate. And and the passing of the bill in the Senate was very complicated and obscure, but it all kind of came down to moving six senators. And it was frustrating. We sort of failed three times in that legislative fight before we passed. We came right up against the end of the legislative clock. The community was 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 worried and panicked and furious that we were going to fail. And there was just all of this negative energy swirling around. And it understandably was directed at either me, the sort of most high-profile leader of the biggest LGBT organization, or the president, because it was just easier. You know, he was the, the figurehead. He was the person we had placed all our hopes and dreams in. And so as people were chaining themselves to the White House friends or disrupting speeches, either that the president was giving or at HRC dinners, for us, there was this sort of you know, confusion, like why isn't the anger directed at these six senators? You know, why isn't, we're off working to try to move these guys in any way that we can, doing things for them like polling in their state or, you know, bringing soldiers in in their district offices to help them to understand the the, uh, implications of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. You know, we were doing sort of behind the scenes, sometimes in a covert way, sometimes in ways that people didn't understand, the work we knew needed to get done in order to move those six senators. Uh, but it it often wasn't apparent to the community. It often wasn't done in ways that made people feel good or validated their anger um, or spoke to their anger. And so, you know, I understood it all and I appreciated it all. But given the choice to sort of turn from what needed to be done to simply you know, yell and scream and beat my chest and, and, and become furious at the president like everybody else, I, I knew that I had to just sort of keep my head down and do the work that needed to be done in order for us to be successful. And that's what I did. And, and you know, sometimes at a price, because when you do that and you sort of keep your head down and do the behind the scenes kind of complicated, archaic work that needs to get done, people don't then sort of recognize that you or your organization um, were as responsible for that success as as you were. But, you know, that's the challenge of leadership. It's the age-old um, consequence of leadership. But I think, you know, good leaders, and I like to think that I was one, are people who put the mission, you know, over their own individual standing in the pursuit of the mission. Well, and that you did, and you got it done. I mean, you got a lot of things done while you were uh, at the helm of the HRC, and the HRC has such an important place in our movement. There's There are necessary levels, I think, from the grassroots place to D.C., and, and so it's all really, really important. And you got a chance to witness, you know, some, some really monumental events. We all witnessed marriage equality happen. And I think from a spectator standpoint, some people think, okay, it's over, we have it, we've won. And yet there's so much more that we need to do. From your perspective and your experience, what's the next most important pressing issue that our movement needs to take on? Well, I think there are a few things. I think there is um, you know, clearly much more work to do, uh, educational work to do uh, around uh, the, the lived experience of transgender people. I mean, in, in every facet, from workplace discrimination to violence to uh, public accommodations, as we've seen played out in such a difficult way in North Carolina. So, uh, and, you know, as an LGBT community, that that is uh, one of the most important efforts that we can't lose sight of. I think the other is that for all of our progress, there are always going to be 
attempts to roll back that progress. And what we saw and have you know, kind of seen over the last year or two is this work at the state level to try to move these religious liberty bills or religious exemption bills, as I call them. Uh, you know, the idea being, okay, at the federal level, we've passed marriage equality, but here in Indiana or Alabama or any place else, you know, we're going to sort of introduce this harmless piece of legislation that says, well, we're not going to attempt to overturn marriage. We're just going to sort of say anybody that has a you know, personal religious uh, resistance to marriage can opt out. You don't have to acknowledge the existence of it, whether you own a business, uh, you know, you don't have to participate or whether you have, you know, sort of retail space that you might rent out for events or, uh, you know, and, and of course it can go on and on from there. Um, and, you know, there are certainly people out there who would say, well, I don't know, why not give people a religious opt-out? Uh, and, and we give institutions opt-outs around things, you know, um, you know, a church gets to opt out of um, adhering to certain, you, you know, non-discrimination laws in some states based on their religious affiliation, but we don't do that in this country for individuals, and, uh, and we shouldn't um, because it essentially guts the bill. It essentially guts it. In other words, if you sort of say to, to somebody in a particular state, marriage is legal all across the country and here in Indiana, but if you just kind of don't agree with it, then you don't have to acknowledge that it's the law of the land. And that is a chilling implication for uh, for marriage moving forward. So I think, you know, and, and this happens a lot. It happens in the reproductive rights movement, right? I mean, abortion rights have been legal in America since 1972 and in every state in the country uh, in a number of different ways. While they've never attempted to overturn Roe v. Wade, they've done a hundred different things to limit women's access to reproductive health care. And that's the sort of thing that I think we've got to be very much on top of is this idea that in municipalities and in states around the country, there will be these nefarious efforts to try and roll back our rights without sort of taking it on at a national level, almost in an unnoticeable kind of a way. Pretty dangerous, pretty dangerous possibilities, that's for sure. Well, you know, I think this book is really an outstanding read for seasoned activists and certainly those in, in leadership positions, whether you're in the corporate world or the public world. I think it's going to be a great read for my LGBT students, my young activists. So for all of those young activists that are out there listening, mm -hmm. the next generation, if you will, uh, from your experience, give them some advice. What, what should they do? What's the best approach uh, for them to get involved with the movement and, and move, it, move us forward? So a couple of things in terms of uh, getting involved in, in, in social change and activism, which is that you've got to really uh, figure out where your passion lies and, and where you, you think that your work is a good fit. And so whether that's in the LGBT space, I, I think right now, um, one of the most important things for the LGBT movement to do is to recognize its powerful and important place in the bigger progressive movement. So whether it's around issues of race and Black Lives Matter or reproductive rights or immigration rights, I think... Uh, you know, all of us, particularly people who are newer to activism, have a responsibility to really survey the whole landscape and and make sure that, um, you know, they 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 connect where their passion lies. And so, uh, whether you're a woman of color, um, thinking maybe I should be involved in Black Lives Matter, but really sort of in a way that helps me to raise the prospect that you know lesbians of color 
are particularly at an economic disadvantage, and that's something that I can advance in a different space than simply being in the LGBT space, or a woman who says, you know, I think transgender healthcare uh, and access to trans to healthcare for transgender people is something that the reproductive rights movement should have a greater focus on, and so that's where I'm going to put my energy because you know that expands the you know, the sort of the arsenal of people working towards something centrally important to us. So I think figure out your own unique passion within activism and understand that there's a place for you and go there and then figure out how you can effect the most change. Um, I think the thing about that I try to point out in the book is that no matter where you go or where you end up, at some point you're going to be in the company of somebody, a fellow activist or somebody on the other side who you're going to have to foster a positive relationship with. And the book really is about doing things like being a better listener, putting yourself in somebody else's shoes, working better to understand what's at the heart of someone's resistance to what it is that you seek, uh, and and using those tools and, and being more effective at employing those tactics to get what you want and to get other people to be working in the same direction that you are. Well, the book is called The Gift of Anger. Use passion to build, not destroy. Tell us where people can go to get a copy. Well, the, the, the easiest place to go is to Amazon, uh, amazon.com. It is, it is there, The Gift of Anger. Uh, it's in independent bookstores all over the country. It's on the Barnes & Noble website as well. Uh, and it's published by a firm called Barrett Kohler, B-E-R-R-E-T-T-K-O-E-H-L-E-R. Uh, but, but I think for most folks, the easiest and fastest place, like everything else, is on Amazon. Perfect. We'll put a link on our website at outbeatnews.com. You can just go there and go right to the book. Joe Salmanis, thanks for being with us. It's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for having me back. And that brings us to the end of our hour. My thanks again to my guests tonight, Bishop David Doyle, Fathers Onetto and Martins, and Joe Salmanis. I'll be back next Sunday with Gary Carnavelli for an Outbeat Extra. That's at 8 p.m. and only here on KRCB Radio 91. In the meantime, have a great week, and thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. Outbeat News in Depth is hosted and produced by Greg Moralia exclusively for KRCB Radio. You can listen to our shows on demand on iTunes and on our website at outbeatnews.com. And be sure to follow us all week long on our Facebook page and Twitter feed for the latest LGBT news from here in the North Bay and beyond. Support for Outbeat Radio on KRCB-FM comes from members and from Sonoma West Publishers, bringing you the Sonoma West Times and News, the Healdsburg Tribune, and the Windsor Times, your weekly source for local news, events, and community affairs. You're listening to KRCB-FM Windsor Santa Rosa, Radio 91, online all the time at krcb.org. It's 9 p.m. Stay with us. Open Space District is next.